Well, just wait till your father gets home. Some of you know exactly what that means. It means that you are in trouble, and whenever dad gets home, wrath is going to be paid. And there's the thing... <laughs> There's the thing that I noticed about this is, you know, whenever I would hear those words or another thing that I heard a lot of times is, we will settle this when we get home. And it's like, can we like go to Walmart? Can we make a detour somewhere? Because what happens whenever you hear those words is usually I'm working in my mind a conversation because I know that I'm about to get in a lot of trouble for me, for something that my brother did. I was innocent. Not really. But I knew I, I knew I was in trouble, and I knew there was going to come a time where I was going to be meeting with the disciplinarian face-to-face. -face. And no matter what, like, you know, you're coming up with conversations in your head like, oh, I'll try and do better. Oh, it was my brother's fault. Oh, you guys didn't raise me right. Oh, you know, whatever it is, uh, that last one will never work. Uh, but it's just like you're, you're trying to do it. And you might even try, like, repenting. Like, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. Like, this is the last time it'll happen. And in my experience, it didn't matter. No matter what you did, no matter how hard you tried to make things right, when they got home, you were gonna have to pay the penalty for whatever it is that you did, or your brother did. And we kind of see that story in the book of Obadiah. As we are now kind of, entering into the prophets as we've been going through the series where we're looking at each book of the old testament because remember we started this entire series off by talking about these aren't flyover passages because so often it's like especially when we get to these passages the prophets like we've been dealing with poetry and song in the psalms we've been dealing with wisdom and proverbs we've been dealing with history pretty much from genesis all the way up to judges and Samuel, and the kings, and the chronicles, and now all of a sudden we get in this weird period called the prophets, where in your Bibles they're, they're separated at the end of the Old Testament, and so if you were like me growing up, you thought it was chronological start to end. And so then whenever you would get to the prophets, you'd be like, wow, where did this all of a sudden come from? I don't fully understand what's going on. And so in my reading, it'd be like, all right, we, we get to the prophets, let's skip to the good stuff of Matthew and Jesus and Acts and the epistles and all that interesting stuff that applies to me here today. Not that old, centuries-old writings of the prophets where they're talking about doom and gloom and fire and all that kind of stuff. But what we're going to see as we read the prophets is that God had a message for them, and you could kind of boil it down to there's a message for a specific people that they are speaking to in that time, usually the people of Israel. But then there's also a message for us here today because a lot of times in the prophets, you'll read passages like on that day or the day of the Lord, where it's talking about Christ's return in the millennial kingdom and then his ultimate judgment on the world. And that's kind of what we see when we're reading the book of Obadiah. The prophecy of Obadiah. It is the shortest prophet there is, but yet it has a firm and solid message of kind of that message that a lot of parents say to their kids or a lot of kids probably heard 
wait till dad gets home or we'll settle this when we get there because it's a message that is one of judgment but there's also this glimpse of hope in it and so we're going to read the entire passage of obadiah it's 21 verses and then we're going to pray and then we'll see what god's word has to say for us and so it says the vision of obadiah thus says the lord god concerning edom we have heard a report from the lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations rise up let us rise against her for battle behold i will make you small among the nations you shall be utterly despised the pride of your heart has deceived you you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling who say in your hearts who will bring me down to the ground though you soar aloft like the eagle though your nest is set among the stars from there i will bring you down declares the lord if thieves came to you if plunderers came by night how you have been destroyed would they not steal only enough for themselves if great gatherers came to you would they not leave gleanings how esau has been pillaged his treasury sought out all your allies have driven you to your border those at peace with you have deceived you they have prevailed against you those who eat your bread and have set a trap beneath you you have no understanding will i not on that day declares the lord destroy the wise men out of edom and understanding out of mount esau and your mighty men shall be dismayed o Timon, so that every man from mount esau will be cut off by slaughter because of the violence done to your brother jacob shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for jerusalem and you were like one of them but do not glow over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune do not rejoice over the people of judah in the day of their ruin do not boast in the day of distress do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity do not glow over his disaster in the day of his calamity do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress for the day of the lord is near upon all the nations as you have done it shall be done to you your deeds shall return on your own head for as you have drunk on my holy mountain so all the nations shall drink continually they shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been but in mount zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of jacob shall possess their own possessions the house of jacob shall be a fire and the house of joseph a flame and the house of esau stubble they shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of esau for the lord has spoken those of the negev shall possess mount esau and those of the shephelah shall possess the land of the philistines they shall possess the land of ephraim and the land of samaria and benjamin shall possess gilead the exiles of this host of the people of israel shall possess the land of the canaanites as far as zarephath and the exiles of jerusalem who are in seraphirad shall possess the cities of the negev saviors shall go up to mount zion to rule mount esau and the kingdom shall be the lord's if you'll join me as we open in a word of prayer father god thank you for giving us your word and god that it is living and active as you tell us that it is able to penetrate to the bone and the marrow into our deepest parts and so god i pray that this morning your message penetrate our hearts 
so that we can just see what you have to say and the hope that we have that Kay and so many other saints are living out right now. God, may this all be for your glory and may we open up our hearts to hear your message before it's too late. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so the book of Obadiah, written by Obadiah. He was a prophet, and that's pretty much what we know about him. There were about nine Obadiahs that are mentioned in the Bible, but there's little to no detail about who this one specifically is. So it could be one of those nine, or it could have been a tenth one. But we know that he is a prophet speaking God's word. So because we don't know anything about him, and there's really nothing specific in that text that gives us a date, the dating is kind of difficult to know for sure. And so they really come to three different uh, times that they think Obadiah was written. The first is the latest dating, which would put it post 538 BC, which was when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, where you have Nebuchadnezzar coming in and taking out all of Jerusalem and going. And so that's the latest one. Then you have a time during Ahaz and his reign. And then you have the earliest one, which is during the reign of Jehoram, which is about 848 to 841 BC. And the reasons that they choose that are given there where this is kind of the most possible. And even though there's two differing views, the two dominant ones are the early and the late. Because of the evidence there, I go with the early. And so I have it being one of the first prophets. If you have a different one, that is fine. We can still eat lunch together. You're paying, though. The audience is the nation of Edom. This is one of the few prophets that is not directed towards Israel, but it's towards the nation of Edom, who are the descendants of Esau. So you remember you have Isaac, who is Abraham's son, and he is the father of twins. Jacob, who you get the 12 tribes of Israel, and Esau, where you get the Edomites coming from. And the context of it is there's always been this friction, sibling rivalry. And I hear it's very common among twins to kind of go above and beyond to be that competitive nature there. But here you have sibling rivalry. I mean, you talk about in Genesis, whenever they are in the womb, that they are struggling with each other. Right there in the womb, they're at odds with each other. And then you have Esau coming out first, but Jacob is grasping onto his heel. And then you have Esau who sells his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. So again, you have that friction all the way to Jacob deceiving his dad, Isaac, and getting the blessing that was meant for Esau. And so then that takes sibling rivalry to a whole new level that uh, Jacob flees because he's afraid he's going to die. And then you get post-Exodus even. It goes on to their generations below them where after the Exodus, Israel is about to go through Edom. They're seeking passage and they're like, we won't step off the road. We won't graze on your land. We won't take water from your well. Just let us go through. And Edom says, no way, Jose, not happening. You do not get to pass through. And then it continues on where there's a moment where Edom rebels against the king of Judah. And then they even go to war against Judah. And so we see this friction happening over and over. 
that the context here is at some point, Israel has gone through this difficulty because you read about in the day of your brother's calamity, don't rejoice because that's what Edom is doing. At some point, Israel is attacked and Edom is rejoicing over it. They're like, hey, hey, nanny, nanny, boob, you know, sibling rivalry thing. Although a little more extreme than that. They're like, you just got pillaged and we are happy about that. And so God is saying, whoa, hold on here. Because they're going through this little difficulty, judgment is coming upon you. And that's kind of what Obadiah is. It's kind of a trial where what Obadiah does is he presents the crime. First off, the crime is they are prideful there in the first five verses. That he says, you are so lofty and high up. You think you're flying like the eagles, but don't worry, you will be brought down. You are arrogant and prideful. And then you are rejoicing that your brother has stumbled. So he presents the crime. He gives the trial. He is putting them on trial. And then the last thing is he pronounces their judgment. That it is total destruction. He goes on to say that even if thieves come in, they're going to maybe steal your TV. They're going to maybe steal your car. They'll leave you stuff in the pantry. Not the case for you, Edom. There's going to be nothing left. You will have total destruction. And so then there you have the breakdown of what it is. And this actually comes to be true. That Edom started going through a lot of struggles of their own. And eventually in AD 70, they joined alongside Israel to rebel against Rome. Only for Edom to be destroyed in that time. And there were only a couple survivors left. And to this day, there is not an Edom. That God's word proved true. Even though it was spoken about in my uh, interpretation, 848 to 841 B.C., a couple of thousand years later, they're gone, or a thousand years later. They're no longer a nation. That the word of the Lord stands true. And then where you see Jesus in Obadiah is the first thing is, is that Jesus is the judge of the nations. He is the one that will judge. And then the second thing that you see is he is also the savior of Israel. And then the last thing is he is going to be the possessor of of the kingdom and here we're kind of looking to the future now as he is going to judge all nations as he is going to be the savior of the people of god and then also as he is going to possess his kingdom the kingdom of god that he came and pronounced in matthew 4 by saying repent for the kingdom of god is at hand and so what we see in Obadiah, again, is this powerful message of judgment. And there's these kind of chilling words in there that we can just breeze over. And it's in verse 18, where Obadiah says, Thus says the Lord, or the Lord has spoken. In common terms for today, that's like saying you can take it to the bank. Like, people of Edom, this is happening. Your time is gone. It's too late. Don't give me your apologies. Don't give me your I'll try later or I'll try better later. It's too late. Judgment is coming upon the people of Edom because what you never see in this passage is a call for repentance. 
You don't see God saying, repent and turn back to me, because there's not that opportunity for the people of Edom. It's too late. Judgment is coming. And as we said, in the 70 AD, that judgment came, when their nation was finally destroyed. And so again, what we see here is that the word of the Lord is true, that when God says he is going to do something, when he says the Lord has spoken, he means it. It is going to happen. And so what we're called to do, what do we do when we read this text that is foreign, that is old, that we don't necessarily understand? What do we do when we read it? We take heed to its warning. We see the message that God is saying is that there is judgment that is coming. There is a wrath that is going to come upon this world. And unlike the people of Edom who had no time for repentance, he's saying you still have a chance. Judgment does not have to come to you. Obadiah is telling us wrath is coming. We see this in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, we see that the scrolls are open. Revelation chapter 5, John goes up and he weeps because he says, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And then the elder says, Behold, the lamb who was slain. And so he turned and he sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then we get this glimpse of the trumpets and the seals and the bowls. And we see all of that happening. And what we see is the wrath of God being poured out on the world. I mean, I don't know about you. You might be one of those people that are like, man, Revelation is scary. It's creepy. It's confusing. I don't read it. But what it, not me, I like it now. I used to be that person. But what we see when we read Revelation is a glimpse of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on the world before the final judgment, which Obadiah is telling us about right now, saying it is going to come. He says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So this is like in today, the president, the cabinet, The generals, the celebrities, everybody that you might be looking to, they are the ones that are going to save me. In Revelation, it says, no, they're the ones that are fleeing. They're the ones that are going to hide. And then this next passage in verse 16, it says, they call to the mountains and the rocks. They're hiding in the caves and they're like, fall on us. Hide us from the wrath of him, from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the lamb. For great, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Everybody that is like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about that. Bring it on. We're ready. Let's go. It's like, no, you are going to hide in the rocks and you're going to cry out to them. Please fall on top of me and kill me so that I don't have to face this wrath. He goes on to say in chapter 9, verse 6, those days people will seek death and they will not be able to find it. They will long to die, but it will flee from them. Oh, that it could just all end right here, right now, so that I don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb. But it's too late. Judgment has come. And it's time to pay their dues, to pay the consequences for what they did. And then there is the ultimate wrath. 
I mean, that's the wrath of God there. And then they face the judgment throne of God in Revelation chapter 20, where it says the death and Hades, they were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It was made for the serpent. It was made for the dragon and for the beast. Death and Hades are thrown in. But then it also says, if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he also is thrown into the lake of fire. That you have a choice to repent and turn to God and have your name written in his book of life. And we do not have to fear that judgment. Because Obadiah is saying judgment is coming and for the people of Edom, it is far too late. You cannot repent. But what God is saying today is you can. That God wants to bring you in and spare you from his wrath to come. Because the thing is, is that God is holy. It's like, why can't God just like be like, Phew, everybody's got a clean slate, you're all forgiven, and none of that has to happen. Because he's a holy God. And sin is in this world. And God says that he will destroy sin. He tells us that he is so holy that he is not able to look upon sin. He tells us that he has no sin in him. We're told this in 1 John. It says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And then he says that in 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then Habakkuk tells us that God's eyes are too pure to be able to look at wrong and see evil. That he will have nothing to do with it. He is pure holiness. And sin is pure opposition to him and who he is. And so he says, I hate sin, I'm going to destroy it. But the thing is, is that Ephesians tells us we are slaves to sin. And so if God destroys sin, it's going to bring its slaves down with it. And so we are called to repent, to turn back to God. Because God says the wages of sin in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In Romans 3.23, he tells us every single one of us, has sin. So every single one of us is deserving to die. And it's not even just as they were saying in Revelation, please end my life. It's going to be that in that lake of fire, please kill me so that I can just cease to exist and I don't have to experience this, but it will ever be fleeing from us. We will never be able to die with the desire to end it all. It is an eternal separation from God and his wrath will be poured out on sin and on everything that the devil has done. And actually, 1 John verse 8 of chapter 3 tells us that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil, that he came to free us from that. That there is a judgment that is coming because of the works of the devil and our giving into them and being a slave to them. But Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And I don't even think that John is talking about someday in the future. This is what we call sanctification. 
where gradually through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are becoming more and more like Christ. That the things I used to do, I hate now. I don't want to do them anymore. That through the work of Jesus in my life and my surrendering over to him, I'm no longer addicted to that. I'm no longer controlled by that. I struggle with it. There's moments of flaring up, but it is not who I am. It is not how I identify. It is not how I live in my life. I'm a child of God because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came and he took our place as well. That Obadiah tells us wrath is coming. There is a judgment that is going to fall, as Paul tells us in Romans 3, on every single one of us. For all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And that's coming for all. But what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, is he says, Christ suffered once for sins. He was the righteous And he suffered for us, the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Isaiah tells us that he bore our grief and he carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All like all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That there is a judgment to come. There is a wrath to be paid. But what we see is that God poured his wrath out on Jesus so that we don't have to. In the Old Testament, wrath is illustrated in a cup. That in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 16, it says, They shall all drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. That's not the right passage. But it goes on to say that my cup of wrath is going to be poured out on them. It kind of makes sense when we read that in the Old Testament, it's illustrated in a cup. That in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, what is his prayer? My father If there be any way, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. Let this cup of your wrath, because you see what happened there on the cross is that God's wrath was poured out not on us, but on Jesus. He was afflicted for us. He was pierced for us. The righteous took on our unrighteousness and received the death that every single one of us is deserving to die. So that now we can escape the wrath to come. Because there's still a wrath to come. So we have a choice that we can make. We can accept that Jesus paid the price for us and took God's wrath upon himself. So that now we are children of God. We are identified as children of God. And so his wrath will not be poured out on us. Or we can try and live it out. We can try and live to the abundance of our joy on this life and figure things out later when God says there's going to come a day where I'm coming back. And you just wait until I get home, until I come back, because then it is too late. You will not be able to repent. There will be no time for repentance. 
You see, Jesus is giving us that option. He is giving us the choice now, in this moment, to repent. Because John tells us, the, John the Baptist, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says that Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. Because he took it upon himself so that we do not have to worry about it when we are born again. When we give our life over to Christ. When we surrender to him. When we believe in our heart and confess with our mouths who he is. And again, we kind of hit on it last week. That this belief is not the belief that Abraham Lincoln lived. It's not a knowledge It is a transforming my life because of it. It is a, I believe that I am saved from the wrath to come because of the price that Jesus paid. And so no longer do I live the way that I used to live. No longer do I make a practice of sin because 1 John actually tells us that. It says in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he goes on to say in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says that Jesus appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. And then he starts to let the rubber meet the road. He starts to say that true faith in Christ is going to show how we live our life. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. That there is a way that we can tell, okay, am I truly a child of God or am I not? Well, answer this question. Are you still living according to the ways of this world or are you living according to the ways of God? Because Jesus says, everyone who is of me, everyone who loves me will obey my commandments. And so if you're not doing anything Jesus calls you to do, I'm going to let Jesus tell you, you're probably not of him. Because here Jesus tells us in 1 John chapter 3, he goes on to say in verse 6, no one who abides in me, so if you're living in me, if you're one of mine, no one who abides in me keeps on sinning. Now this is talking about living a lifestyle of sin. Because I'll tell you, I'm, I'm confident that I abide in Christ, that I am a child of God. But I still sin. I still allow my mouth to slip. The thing is, is that I do not live a life of sin. I am not identified by my sin. I am living to glorify and please and honor my Father in heaven. Because John goes on to say that. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, whoever makes it a daily lifestyle, a way of living your life, whoever practices righteousness, that's righteous. He is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. So again, Struggling? Yes. Romans chapter 7 tells us that. The thing I don't want to do, because I'm not living that way. I'm dying to it. I'm fighting it. But the thing that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. 
And so there's that struggle with sin. The problem is whenever you say, you know what, this must be how God made me. So I'm going to live this way. You know what, my body just wants this, and so I'm not even going to fight it anymore. I'm just going to give in to the lust of the flesh. I'm going to give in to the desires of the eyes. I'm going to give in to the pride of life. I'm going to just, if I want it, you know what, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. I'm going to live my life how I want. Jesus right here is saying, you're not of me, because anybody who abides in me keeps my commandments. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He says, no one born of God practices or makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in you. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What John is telling us is that we are called to transform our lives. You want to get semantic about it? We are called to allow Jesus to transform our lives. We let him enter in, but there's still that role that we play, that we daily die to ourselves. Jesus says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself daily. There's a part that we play. Deny ourselves daily. Die to that so that we can be raised again in Jesus, new creation. So that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, how can we keep on living in that which we died? You claim that you've died to your sins and you're living in Christ. So does that mean though that because sin increases, grace increases all the more? He says, no way. He says, how can we keep on living in that which we have died? And so he is saying what John is saying, that what we are called to do is to repent, to surrender over to God and to live for him, seeking a holy life. Again, remember, there's that line that we like to tiptoe around and it's called sin. And it's like, okay, on this side of the line, I'm kosher with Jesus. On this side, I sin. How close can I get? Like is on the line out of bounds or is it just right up next to it? Is it getting tipsy? Is that drunk? Is that a sin? Is it, you know, reaching second base? Y'all know what I mean. Is that a sin or is it just, you know, how, how close can I get before it's a sin? And what Jesus is saying is run. He says flee from sin. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from your youthful desires. He says flee from it all the way. And the question is how... Not how close to sinning can I get and not sinning. How holy can I be? How much like Christ can I live my life for? How much can I be like him? Because the world is going to say, hey, yo, come on. You can straddle the line. I don't know if you've ever straddled something, especially for dudes when it's really high. It's very uncomfortable. No joke? Okay, sorry. (laughs) Thank you. But, you know, I mean, it's like when you straddle something, it does, some of you might have to explain to another person. But when you straddle something, it's like, man, this is so uncomfortable. And so what God is saying is flee it all. Go and pursue righteousness. Make a practice of righteousness. Because Jesus tells us that when we do so, we are delivered from 
the wrath that is to come. In Obadiah, you have 16 verses about this wrath coming, about this judgment coming, about there is no hope for the people of Edom. But there is a glimmer of hope. Verse 17 tells us, In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possession. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. They shall be united. And the house of Esau, stubble, destroyed. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. You know, there's going to come a day where God's wrath is going to be poured out on the world. But as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. That there is an escape from it, and it is found only in Jesus. Edom had no chance to repent. Jesus is saying, today you have a chance. Today you have an opportunity to turn from the ways of this world, which are leading to destruction. John told us that the ways of this world will disappear, and you can turn to the Father who loves you who opens out his arms and embraces you. This is the appeal that the writer of Hebrews is making in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, take care, brothers. Notice he says brothers. He's speaking to believers, and he's saying, or so-called believers. He's speaking to people who think, hey, we're kosher with God. We're good. And he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Be careful. Just because you're here doesn't necessarily mean everything's right. Check your heart. But he says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, don't dance with sin. Exhort each other. Hey, you are living for God. You're about to leave from here, and you're about to enter into a week of living in the secular world. That is going to try and pull you towards the secular way. That's going to try and cause you to compromise. And he says, don't do that. You're living for a higher calling. Live for God. Exhort each other every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, because we have all come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then he says, as it is, this is the plea he is making. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That if you are hearing that God is calling for you, not even just to stop, but to repent, to confess your sins, to repent, Repent of them. Sometimes we can do really good at the confession. Hey, today I looked at pornography five times, and uh, next week I plan on doing the same thing. All right, I confessed it, but there's not that repentance. So we confess our sins, we repent from it, and then we seek after living for God. That if God is, if you are hearing God's word today, and he is saying, get right with me, because there is a day coming when it's going to be too late. But here and now, today, he says you can be confident that you will enter into the throne room of God. And that is found through Jesus, giving your life over to him, and then letting him work in you. Because he says that when you 
confess, when you repent, when you believe, he says that I will send my helper, the Holy Spirit, and then you'll start seeing that fruit chain that Galatians 5 tells us about. Where the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You'll see the work of the Holy Spirit in you as He controls you. All you're called to do is let go and let Him take control and surrender over to Him. So today, as He says, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Turn to Him. Live for him, and you have no fear of the wrath to come. Because 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus appeared to deliver us from the wrath to come. Father God, I want to praise you for giving us that assurance that John tells us in 1 John that he writes these things so that we can have an assurance that we are safe. That God, you've said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so God, I just ask that you work in the hearts of your people as they are hearing your word. God, let it be your word. And that we now respond to that. That God, there be areas even in my own life that I'm trying to be like, well, this is just what I struggle with and I'm not changing it. God, reveal those to us so that we can repent of them and pursue holiness that we can practice righteousness. But God, I'm thankful that it's the righteousness of Jesus that saves and that you have given us that righteousness when we confess and believe in him. So God, I just pray that if there be anybody that hears your voice today and God, they not harden their heart, but surrender over to you. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray this, amen.